welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. It is a board gaming podcast about board games, where my good friend Mark Bigney and I, Michael Walker, talk about board games, games we've played this week, the game we reviewed last year, news in the board gaming industry and why it does not matter. Our feature game of the week is Warpgate, and our topic is biggest rules mistakes ever. 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 That's a high bar. I was just going to limit it to the biggest ones that we've encountered. Ah, gotcha. All right. So, Mark, we alluded to some news last week, and we can talk about the news that we alluded to, and it is to do with the big convention in, in Vancouver run by Shut Up and Sit Down. The convention is called Shucks. It runs from October 4th to 6th, and we've been invited to do a talk there or one of our shows live there, and we've both... Thanks to the Patreon money that we received, are now able to do that, and we've confirmed that we're going to do that, so we will be there in October, so we're hoping whoever is in that area, or even if you're not in the area and you planned on going, we will meet you there, and we will have a live show, and I think it's going to be fantastically fun. I'm looking forward to it. We have now discovered what it takes to get me to go to a convention, and what it takes to get me to travel. And that is people being very, very nice and kind and extending free passes to us and inviting us and giving us free stage I was about time. to say, it's two things, a convention and travel. Yes. And they, they cleared you on both hurdles. You know, kudos to them. I do have friends on the West Coast, so I'll be able to visit them. But we are very, very grateful to Quinns and everyone else to shut up and sit down for extending this invitation. We're enormously flattered and we're enormously grateful. And so we're looking forward to possibly meeting some of the swaggers there if you happen to make it out. For those of you who are not con people like myself, I, of course, understand that. And, and of course, I'd just like to echo what Walker just said. It is only by virtue of the generosity of our Patreon backers that we're going to be able to afford to go to the West Coast. Because I don't know if you know this, but those metal birds ain't cheap. And and Canada's a big country. It's really big. It's, I think it's bigger than it needs to be. It have really you, have you looked at the Canadian Shield? The Canadian Shield is huge. It's a little pretentious, I think. It's a little, you know. No, no, no. The Shield is salt of the earth. No, just but... Canada itself. You know, I think it's a little, you know. A little big for its britches. You I think, think it's it showing to, off at a certain take, point? Yeah, it needs to take about 20% off the top. Okay, fair enough. So that's our big news. Uh, some of you already knew this. Some of you saw the announcement from Shut Up and Sit Down themselves, but we didn't We didn't want to jump the gun and talk about it publicly before we got to feel very important having embargoed news. It was all very, very special. And more details to follow. We'll yep. be able to tell you when specifically we'll be giving our talk and other things that we'll be doing at the con. Yes, this is going on too long. Game we reviewed last year. It's Feudum. I just think that's it's one of the things that we're doing. Is this how you feel all the time? You talk for 90% of the time, and when I try to open my mouth, you talk right over me? Exactly. Wow. I'm not a nice person. Yeah, notice. Yes, yeah. So, the game we played last year was Feudum. Mark, have you played Feudum since? No. Have you? No. Have you wanted to play Feudum since? No. I, I will say this. I'm not at all surprised that it found an audience, because... I, I particularly have been complaining over the past few months about where modern Euro design sensibilities are going. Now, there's still lots of people that are churning out great, great stuff. I'm thinking specifically like Splatter. When I want to do a heavy, long Euro thing, I think of a Splatter game, high levels of player interaction, relatively smooth access to game mechanisms, but a huge decision space. Feudum, we both knocked for being far too cumbersome, you know, an hour-long rules explanation, and then an economy that was kind of fragile and didn't quite work. Systems within systems within systems. So I'm not at all surprised that it's it's got its adherence. It's very popular amongst some people. It has about six expansions already, and it's getting more and more all the time. Yeah, it's got an interesting theme and really cool art style, but it just, yeah, did not click. It's very much a product of, of, of its market. You know, first-time creator on Kickstarter making uh, his or her dream project. And it turned out, I think, more or less the way they wanted it yeah, to. And I a think, lot of people like it, but it's not for us. I think a phrase I used was developer's nightmare. Yeah. Yes. That characterization, I think, is held up very, very well. All right. And that is the game we reviewed last year, Feudum. Now, on to the games we played this week. Mark, talk about The Boldest last week. I finally got to play it. It's got some fantastic art and some interesting mechanisms. And like you said, it's a lot for the simplicity, but I think it's still... I think it's still interesting enough to pull out once in a while. I agree. It. I, I listened back to the comments that I made last week, and I, I really do think it's accurate. You know, it's, it's kind of an awkward sort of not a filler, not a full meaty game, 45 to 60 minutes. But playing it more, I really do get to, like, see the opportunities open up and anticipate the double think and the spatial element of the, of of grabbing various things. And the same people consistently do well and consistently do poorly, which I think is a sign that there's actually some quality decision-making going on. 
Well, thinking back, I think there really is. You really need to watch how people go, what they go heavy in and sort of save your cards from round to round instead of, you know, you know, spending all your cards and or all types of one cards and being able to take what you do is you put a bunch of cards in each category and if you've got the most, then then you win. So you've got to sort of, and if you're the only person using that particular suit, then you, you win automatically. So seeing what people are playing, seeing the distance space, I think it will play much better on a higher player count because you, like you said, there's a first and second player winner and I think that'll play out much better so I'm looking forward to playing it with a higher player count. Yeah, I'm looking forward to playing some more of the boldest. As I say, it's not the deepest thing in the world, but as far as blind bidding goes, it offers just enough so it doesn't feel completely arbitrary. Sometimes you get blindsided, of course, but very often when I do badly, and I do very badly at the boldest, I think it's mostly my fault. So, interesting design, uh, the second design from Sophia Wagner, and uh, I'll probably be getting it to the table again soon. And it it's not difficult to get to the table how based on how incredibly gorgeous it is. So, there's that. And how easy it is to pick up, right? It's one of these games where you can just open the box and, and play again because there's low threshold. Yes, the biggest obstacle to setting up is deciding what adorable animal you want to be in your in your camp. Exactly. So in the context of the boldest, uh, <clears throat> I said that it was, you know, 45 to 60 minutes, too long for filler, too short for a mini game. I played Wingspan, and it was more or less what I thought it was going to be. So Wingspan is the latest release from Stonemeyer Games, and I've said before, I have not enjoyed anything they've done other than Scythe. Scythe, I think, is good, not great, and everything else they've put out, I think, has been various shades of either mediocre to absolutely terrible. But their products are very, very popular, and Wingspan very much fits in their catalog. Low player interaction, low quality decision making, relatively generic tableau builder with beautiful components. And I've been asked about Wingspan actually by two different non-gamers who are either birders or friends of birders, because Wingspan is about kind of sort of setting up a bird preserve, maybe almost. And so I was keeping that in mind, and I will say this about Wingspan, the, the, the artwork on the cards is beautiful. All these different birds and little fun facts about the birds at the bottom, their, their actual Wingspan and, and, and little, little trivia tidbits. But just on that topic, the theme is borderline incoherent. The actual theming of the game, this is one of those instances where we would really like to stand by some of our previous comments about the difference between thematic evocation and thematic integration. Thematic evocation is kind of okay because it's very pretty. But in terms of the integration of the theme, so just let me give you an example. If you want to play a bird to your tableau and that part of the tableau is particularly dense, like you want to play a bird of the wetlands, but you've already played a lot of birds of the wetlands, you need to pay eggs, some number of eggs. So what I can do is I can take an egg from a buzzard and I can take an egg from a titmouse and then I get to play this new owl onto the wetlands or whatever. Frankenstein owl. I don't really know what that's meant to represent other than pay some resources to put out cards, which, you know, we do in literally dozens of other games all the time. So it's a very generic feeling tableau builder. Vanishingly little player interaction. It was fine, but it was, you know, 45 to 60 minutes. And again, it, while playing it, I, I, I kept thinking I was too hard on the boldest because I was saying, well, you know, I, I wish it were either, you know, a little bit more substantial, or a little bit shorter, but at least in the boldest, you make good decisions and there's player interaction. Wingspan did absolutely nothing for me. And I didn't hate the time I was playing with it. It was all like, you know, play a card, something happens, wee. But it's just, as, as far as design goes, I, I, I really think it, it's got practically nothing to offer. So that's what I thought of Wingspan. That's Wingspan by Stonemeyer Games. All right, I got to play Council of Four. It's by the same designers that did Marco Polo. It's a little bit of an older game, but I thought it was fairly fantastic. I only got to play it once, but there was definite decision-making going on there. It had a very interesting mechanism of how to play cards and the, the cost you had to pay. You'd had to, you know, the, the Council of Four, the idea is that there's these uh, maybe guys you have to bribe off maybe zero theme in this game so let's just you know invent some theme that you know sounds cool so you sort of manipulate who's in power and it's like a color thing and then it's sort of like ticket to ride you need this many colors and it reduces the cost and, and very cool mechanism i'm very looking very much looking forward to playing it again because now that i know how it plays you know you're trying to you know control areas and make it harder for other people to get in because it costs more the more people that are there and like we always enjoy, multiple paths to victory, and that is Council of Four. I'm looking forward to trying it again as well, primarily because I don't think we were playing very intelligently. Because the way Council of Four works, it's kind of like a root connection game, not entirely unlike Ticket to Ride or Turn in Taxis, not that anyone plays that anymore, and Good Riddance. 
in that you get a bonus every time you build into a city, but if you build into a chain of cities, you get everything along there. And that was a little bit tedious, actually. We had these massive chains of seven, eight cities, and calculating all those bonuses up was a little bit time-consuming. But the thing is, I don't think that that's the way to win. I think that the way to win is just to have a laser focus on completing color sets, which are not necessarily in the chain. And we weren't doing that. We were just like, yay, one big omni-chain, which kind of sort of makes sense. I will just say as a note, we were playing with the Cranial Creations version, which is the first one. The one that's currently in print, the version that's more readily available now, I think, especially in North America, is the Coolman You're Not version. And this was the first time, actually, when I saw a Coolman You're Not game and figured, nah, I prefer the previous edition. Because in the version we have, there are these lovely little cardboard balconies. And when you replace a noble, it slides in and it shoves off one of the nobles off the end. And we were thinking that maybe there could have even been some sort of weird pirate theme, you know, because they, they literally fall off the edge. It's kind of cool. It's surprisingly tactile and fun. The Coolman You're Not version replaces all of them with guess what? Minis. And so there's no balcony anymore. There's just four plastic minis for each house and you just swap one out. It seems uh, uh, perfectly usable, but you don't get that same little uh, nice slidey element. Anyway, minor note on the newer edition. Very much lighter than the other works of uh, Simone Luciani and Daniel Tacchini. It, it, it's not as meaty as Voyages of Marco Polo or Tolkien or a lot of the other stuff that they do there. But yeah, it was very satisfying and I'm looking forward to trying it again. And that was Council of Four. Got to play another game of Root. Just a quick shout out to our game of the year of 2018. It was very nice. It was the first one I'd ever seen for the cats, actually, because there's been lots of talk about the balance of the various factions and lots of going back and forth about how balanced you want the game to be. You know, in a game that heavily asymmetric, who knows how close to balance you can actually ever get. But I do like seeing all the different combinations of factions and seeing how they interact and watching new players uh, approach new factions. Still haven't tried the Corvid Conspiracy, but they've been updated recently. So it's a good thing I, I waited. Uh, turns out I was very prescient. And fabulous game of Root as always. It was all returning players and uh, everyone had a great time. That was Root. I got to play a game called Imperious. And at the beginning, I asked if it was anything like Smash Up or 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 Blood Bowl Team Manager, and I was assured that it was not, and that was a lie. It's very much in that same grain where there's, you know, uh, locations in the middle of the thing, and you're playing cards to the various locations, trying to get different advantages or disadvantages or trying to mess up your other players. So it's very much in the same vein. I'm looking forward to playing it again because... Because the way there's there's different interactions, you're handed a hand of cards, you draft them, and if you, and everyone's all the cards are factioned like based on the player, so you can play cards from other people's factions, and it will help them out. So yeah, know, two two features well known in Smash Up and Blood Bowl Team Manager. Oh, come on. Anyway, so figuring out where to play them and where they're least less advantageous to them, and. And there's other there's another mechanism where a lot of the cards are face down, which I don't really see how that is helping the decision space because it's really taken away a lot from the game because you have no idea what's there. So you're really playing blind. That was, would be one negative takeaway from Imperius. But other than that, I'm looking forward to trying it again and seeing if there's a deeper game there. I'm... I'm kind of torn about whether or not I want to play Imperius again. Imperius is the is a design by Grant Rodiak who did... Cry Havoc, which is a game I wanted to like but couldn't. And I feel like after one play, Imperius is kind of in the same position. However, when playing Imperius, there's a lot of chaos going on because, as you say, the, your cards don't necessarily end up in your hand and some of them get played face down. And at the, end of the, at the end of the round, all the cards get revealed and then a whole bunch of things happen. At times, I could glimpse at something remotely resembling clever play. Not anything that I did ever, but, you know, things that other people did. However... Very often they would then shrug and say, I, I didn't do anything with that, or that was entirely by accident. And the rest of the time it was just crazy things happening. Now, if it's the case that you can get players together at the table and all of them have played a number of times, then maybe it its greater depth will reveal itself. So I'm not, I'm not in a position to say that it's a chaotic game. I'm, I'm in a position to say that on your first play, a lot of weird stuff is going to happen. And... I don't know if I'm really interested in getting a group together that could reliably play it because I think that one random player could spoil the entire thing. Agreed. And so I'm curious. I, I, I would just... Because some people swear by Imperius. It has a, has a fair number of fans who swear that for its, its, for its length, it's a very, very short game. Very visually, visually appealing as well, I think. And if it, if it could deliver the promise of what I was glimpsing at or imagining, I'd be very, very, very interested in it. I just don't know if I can get there. So maybe I'll give it another shot. Maybe I won't. It seems awfully difficult to internalize any decision-making at all on your first play. 
Maybe that's a me problem. Maybe that's an Imperius problem, but that was certainly my impression. But if you want to try it again, let's 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 make it happen. All right, and that was Imperius. Played two more games of Siege of the Citadel. Now, this was a situation where I knew what I was getting into. The game was already set up, and I had brought my games as available to play, but, you know, I don't want to force my decisions on anyone. So I'm coming and thinking, okay, I don't like this game. I think it's dumb. I think it's got serious problems. I'm just going to enjoy people's company and accept the fact that I'm in for a dumb game. And fortunately, everyone else at the table was more or less on the same page. And so I enjoyed my time, but it really confirmed that I don't think Siege of the Citadel is very good. It has a lot of the same problems that it had in the early 90s. The card values are all over the place. It's really hard for the quote-unquote bad guy to get anywhere. You end up spending a lot of time just moving a whole bunch of minions and rolling a whole bunch of attacks that are not going to do anything. And that's just not a very pleasant experience. We've gotten to a point now in these kinds of skirmishy type things, whether it's 1v-all or or, or co-op, where you really minimized a lot of this upkeep and hassle of pointless attacks and pointless moving around and counting rages and stuff. And Siege of the Citadel really leans into that. And... That Again, had a good time, mostly because we were telling stories. I, I'm always amazed, parenthetically, when people talk about how, oh, this game is great because it really lets you tell stories about what's going on. And I've always found that confusing because despite the fact that I'm a relatively soulless Eurogamer at heart and I, I focus on mechanisms, we tell stories about everything that happens. You know, whether it's a Doom Trooper that cross, uh, goes around the corner coming back from his smoke break and that's why he's he's ineffective, or whether it's the, 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 the fact that somebody is super effective because they need to get back to return the videos that they rented the day before, like, whatever. We just tell these weird stories, and I'm not saying that they're good stories. They make us laugh, but I don't, I've never found a game where we couldn't tell stories about something, so I, I've never quite understood why people will praise an otherwise un, unspectacular game on the basis that it great, creates great stories. Some games give really, really good narrative like Meltwater, like a lot of these other emergent narrative-type games. But anyway, so we told a bunch of stories about dumb things that were happening in Siege of the Citadel, and that's what we did. The scenarios were all over the map. The balance is, is, is dubious to non-existent, and uh, there are about half a dozen to a dozen other games in the same space that we'd much rather play. So that was Siege of the Citadel. So you must be really looking forward to your pledge finally showing up. I'm not a smart man. What can I say? It was, in my defense, it was like, what, seven years ago? I was young and stupid then. It's true. It's true. Now, with the wisdom of hindsight and having, you know, of course, played it again. Look, it had promise. The system in the early 90s had promise. And I thought, well, if somebody modernizes it, they just didn't do that bit. They didn't do the modernization bit. So there we go. So that was Siege of the Citadel. So those are the games we played last week, and now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Walker, what is new in the world? New in the world is a game that we both love. 51st State is coming out with uh, an expansion. As we well know, Portal does a fantastic job of supporting their products, and they keep with them regardless if they're doing well or if they're still in the hotness. They don't care. They keep with their games, and they know their fan base, and their fans know that they're going to do this, so that's why they support them. So anyway, 51st State, the the expansion is called Allies. If you pre-order it, you get some bonus stuff, and you know that we're a sucker for that. And kudos to them for you know taking 100% of the profit because anyone who's anyone will want these extra bits. So that's a great. Oh, it's going to be a big status symbol, that's for sure. It, no one is going to talk to you in the cafeteria unless you have the bonus factions it, for 51st State. Exactly. So bon- extra bonus factions is not yeah that's and it's a really good promo that you get if you pre-order. But anyway, I digress. Fifty First State is a great card drafting tableau builder where you get to destroy. If someone gets a good engine going, you can quickly stamp that out and keep the game balanced and fun. And I'm looking forward to playing this new expansion. In a world of mediocre tableau builders, Fifty First State is is one of the better ones. Definitely. So there's been a lawsuit filed against Plan B Games. It was instituted by Stronghold Games slash uh, Indie Game Studios. And this is over the publication of Great Western Trail. As per usual, everyone on BoardGameGeek has an opinion. No, uh, on the internet? Yeah, I know, I know. Weird. Here's the weird thing, though. What's at issue, and this is this is only the, 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 the barest of, of, of bare elements of the story. What's at issue is Eggert Spiel signed a deal with Stronghold. Then they got purchased by Plan B Games. And now Plan B Games is publishing Western, uh, Great Western Trail. And Stronghold said, no, 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 our, our deal with Eggert Spiel stands. And then a whole bunch of people are saying, like, well, you know, according to me, blah, blah, blah. Look, guys, this is about contracts and acquisition papers, right? Yeah, I'm right? pretty sure this happened before. I'm not, I'm not a legal well, person, no, but, but well, I'm pretty sure when, when a company is acquired, all the contracts they have in place 
are still in hold, and that's part of the purchasing deal. That not necessarily. That, not necessarily. I'm, that's I'm the thing. It's true. It could, there could have been a. This is entirely my point, Walker. It depends on the contract that was originally signed, yeah. and it was, it, and it's based on the terms of the sale. These are two documents, two complicated legal arrangements to which we do not have access. That's true. And even a small clause in either one of these could change the radical field of all this. I have no doubt that both Stronghold Games and Plan B think they're in the right. And I'm willing to assume good faith on the part of everybody. It's just normally when it so for example the when when there was the issue of Age of Steam the rights to Age of Steam were were in dispute and a whole bunch of people wanted to weigh in there at least I had more sympathy for people playing armchair lawyer because we have certain moral intuitions about creatorship and authorship and the royalties that might be involved there and so you can have a discussion about that but here this is just about technical contract True. law I, and nothing else I, I, I don't want to say anything because like you said we do, I don't know anything but I think intuitively there is laws in place that any contracts signed before a sale have to be held up. Otherwise, that's not, no, just, that's not just how a works. moment. Just a moment. Let me finish because people can just start trading companies back and forth to disband contracts. So I'm pretty sure there are some legal clauses in place that uphold some part of contracts that are already in place. Some parts of some contracts after some acquisitions. Exactly. It depends. Yes, exactly. Anyhow, <laughs> don't be like Walker. Don't speculate wildly on lawsuits. This could, this could result in rather long litigation. On the other hand, it could be settled tomorrow. I mean, I, I never thought that the Age of Steam rights issue was ever going to be settled during my lifetime. And sure enough, Eagle Griffin Games and Martin Wallace came to an agreement. So let's hope that something amicable can happen sure. here, too. I've already given away my Great Western Trail, so uh, and it's in local. So if I ever want to play it, I'm good. So I don't have to worry about getting another copy. My bit of news is uh, role-playing, because we talk about role-playing games all the time. So I'm still going to talk about Alien. Alien, the role-playing game. Alien is a franchise that's dear to my heart, and they're coming out with a role-playing system. So a lot of times when there's a role-playing system that is in a world that I enjoy, I buy it just to read the fluff and how they've done things. So I'm looking forward to to seeing, like much like we talked about with uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse when they were doing their role-playing system, I'm very keen on reading those books. I am very interested in seeing this Alien role-playing game. Another property that we like, Warhammer Underworlds, better known as Shadespire, but we can't call it that anymore, uh, is getting a digital implementation. Now, we haven't been playing Warhammer Underworlds much lately by virtue of two major things. Number one, as we've said before, two-player games don't really have much time for that of late. And number two, the weight and volume of cards make it so that it's a little less accessible to new players now. It's at the point now that the system has so many cards in play that it's hard to come up with beginner decks for new players. And so the deck building starts to become, as much as it's an asset, becomes a barrier to entry. But in a digital implementation, who knows? Now, I've said before I don't really like playing board games in digital versions, but for something like Warhammer Underworlds, if the uh, card building is, is any good, and if they keep the cost of the DLCs low enough, because, of course, they're going to charge you extra for this card pack and that card pack and this warband and the other thing, if it's reasonable, I might be willing to give it a try. So that's something that will be coming down the pike from Games Workshop. All right, my thing is... Turmoil, it's an expansion for Terraforming Mars. This was from last week. I saw it last week and I said, well, I don't really care anymore about Terraforming Mars. It's gotten to the point where you open the box and you don't know which expansions to play and you put it away and play something else. So I wasn't going to talk about it because I had no idea that they actually put this expansion for the first time on Kickstarter. Not very many things Stronghold has put on Kickstarter. So I'm very interested to see how far they go with this turmoil, see how much money they raise and see how much further other products they put on Kickstarter. It's certainly not their first Kickstarter, but it is unusual given that they've already put out a number of Terraforming Mars expansions direct to retail and Kickstarter isn't part of their standard MO. So it's quite a, it's quite a shift. I have to assume it's some kind of test balloon, but who knows? On the topic of Kickstarter, a large number of projects were yanked from the platform uh, by Colossal Games and some of their partners on the basis that Kickstarter has decided to start arbitrarily applying some of its standards and practices. In theory, you're not supposed to run, number one, multiple Kickstarters concurrently, and number two, you're not supposed to run a Kickstarter until your past projects have been fulfilled. In theory. Of course, there's some wiggle room in how it's presented, and there is the correct observation that these policies have certainly not been applied what we would call consistently. But 
For whatever reason, Kickstarter decided to bring the hammer down on Colossal, and a whole bunch of projects were shut down. Colossal has delivered games in the past, so they're not a total unknown company, but they certainly have far more outstanding projects than they have projects delivered. So I'm not going to say that it's completely reasonable for them to, to apply things arbitrarily, but I'm not going to, on the other hand, say that Colossal is completely in the right. I'm just concerned that, that given the amount of money that's involved in Kickstarter and how central it is to the hobby, I'm nervous when people start applying policies arbitrarily and haphazardly. They would never, I don't think, do anything like this to Simon or any of the other big suppliers. So if it's just the small people that get hit, then uh, that's, that's not necessarily the kind of environment you want to foster. But by the same token, I'm certainly not in favor of companies having half a dozen or more outstanding projects and yet still putting more projects down the pipe. And we all know for a fact that lots of game companies effectively use it as a store. There's how Queen Games always runs their Kickstarters, which always leaves a bad taste in some people's mouths. There's the incredible lunacy of the Claustrophobia 1643 reprint, where you are buying a soundtrack for $79 and getting the game for free because you can't have the same exact project twice on Kickstarter. It's anyway, people obviously game and manipulate the system. I just don't like environments where manipulate where some people manipulate and get away with it and other people try to just offer projects in good faith and get shut down. So I'm hoping that Kickstarter just gets a little bit more consistent and transparent going forward, but in, I'm not holding my breath. I don't like systems where I don't get my butterfly game, Mark. Yeah. Those are systems I don't like. Yeah, you would pledge for for Papillon, right? Exactly. Or Papillon. I don't I it's a butterfly game. It's a That's butterfly, all we need to know. It's a butterfly game. And now yeah, we yeah. don't get to play it. <laughs> Thanks, Kickstarter. If Colossal just in serial puts out all these projects, we might get it in eight years. <laughs> Who knows? True enough. Yeah, if they have to wait now, since they've been hit once, then then what? Now they have to wait? From now on with all their projects? It's Who, so weird. Who, well, that's just it. Who knows? That's the yeah. problem. And so that's the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our feature game of the week, which is Warp Gate. Insert cool space sound effect here. That sounds like work for the editor, yeah. and uh, the editor would not like to do that. Oh. So Warp Gate was put out in theory last year by Artem Nichiporov of Wolf Designer. This is his second published design after 2017's Guards of Atlantis. Guards of Atlantis was on uh, my top 10 games of the year. And it still remains, I think, one of the best large multiplayer strategy games right up there with Sidereal Confluence. If you've got six people together and you don't want to play a party game, I think you can do a heck of a lot worse. Uh, in fact, I don't even think you can do any better than, than those two games, although sometimes uh, those games are divisive. And so Warpgate was his second design, and he's got some other things down the pike. Uh, Trickshot, which is his hockey game, is supposed to be coming out in, uh, coming out to Kickstarter in May, and there's supposed to be an update to Guards of Atlantis. Now, in terms of full disclosure, I should mention that I was one of the playtesters for Warpgate. I played it a bunch of times on Tabletopia with the designer, and that is why, if you've been paying attention to some of my editorials on the Patreon feed, on So Very Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad. I talked a little bit about the process and why I approached playing Warpgate the way that I did, but long story short, I had someone else teach me the rules so we wouldn't have a repeat of some of the past failures where a game only works because the game designer teaches people and they're the only ones who know how the game works and they're the ones who know how to play it, quote-unquote, properly. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in Warpgate? Well, Warpgate takes... Every game is a new experience. You know, we always like, you know, having... Uh, games be different every time you play them because of random things and they take this to a great new level because the the map is random every time the action cards you're going to draw every turn are random the battle cards you draw before every battle are completely random the objective cards that come up are completely random the tech cards are random off the top the promote cards you're going to draw off a random deck those are going to be random as well and you're going to go to planets and you're going to turn up some random discovery tokens boy are you going to have some fun? That's random as well. Who knows? And that's the random game of Warpgate. Uh, where to begin? Okay, so first of all, the Discovery Tokens are an expansion module. We should, we should talk about them later because the way that it was presented is a bit weird. So in terms of what one does during the course of a typical round is you do indeed draw a random hand of four action cards, but then you slot them out on your board one at a time. When it's your turn to play a card, you play it face up one of the, onto the times one slot. And then next turn you play it onto the times two slot, then the times three, then the times four. And the cards that you play in have two different options on them. Effectively three, because instead of uh, using the card for its effect, you can instead draw more action cards so you can have a little bit more control. Notice that word I'm using, control, over the actions that you're doing later on in the round. 
But the actual resolution of the overwhelming majority of what you're going to be doing turn to turn is pretty deterministic. You can research new texts, and they're from a they're from a visible tableau. You're not pulling them off the top. You're taking from a uh, from visible tableau. You can try to get objective cards, which, although random, are of, of determinate type, and you know what they are as you're getting them. In terms of the, the qualifications, what you need to do in order to score them is a different matter, and we'll get to that later because I think there, there's there's some bones to be had there. Uh, or you can start a fight. You can do all the standard 4XE stuff with the exception of Explorer. Explorer you only really get with the sort of uh, optional module, and even then not so much. It's mostly just about the exploiting, the exterminating, and the expanding. But unlike a lot of other uh, 4XE type games, even the lighter ones, which often tend to clock in at around two hours, a game of Warpgate is very brisk. And in terms of how satisfying it is, we can have some disagreement about that. But I've got to say that in terms of its play length, you do get a lot done. You get a lot of mileage out of the standard 4X experience in a very compact package as far as Warpgate is concerned. Does that strike yeah, you as no, a fair I definitely criticism? have that in there as well. And I'll just add to that as well is the fact that it starts off very quickly as well. Right in round one, of which there's four turns, you're close enough, you're right in the action immediately. You don't have to have this like slow little, you know, as you like, you know, inch your way out from space to space and, you know, round turn six, you finally get in a fight. No, it's right in round one. You're already fighting. You're already taking techs. You're right in the game right away. So that's another great point. Yeah, there's no opportunity for long, ponderous, slow buildup and then a massive conflagration of conflict later on. Even people who are conflict-averse and tend to, to turtle a lot, I've, I watch them play Warpgate and sure enough, they're mixing it up within the first round in part because of how the map is situated and in part just because of how the game is structured so that it's a very, very quick, heavy player interaction experience, unlike a lot of those other more Euro-y type 4Xs, even the ones that I like. like you know, the, the, the standard comparison is Eclipse or even Twilight Imperium. The same thing happens. You build up an infrastructure, you're turtling up, you build a massive fleet, and then come near the end of the game, you're going to throw it against somebody. That does not happen in Warp Game. Let me go. Let me give an actual decent... Uh, game descriptions. So when we talk about these things, people can actually figure out what we're talking about. Like Mark said, at the beginning of every round, you're going to draw a hand of four cards from a deck of 12. And it's going to go around the table and we're going to play out four turns. And when it's your turn, you're going to play one of these cards in order along the slots. It usually goes times one, times two, times three, times four. And you're going to end on the card text. It'll the multiplier will mean you get to do that action a little bit better. So when there's an action you really need to do, get a lot of ships, or is you need a lot of range, or you need to deploy a lot more ships, then you're going to want to hold it back. So one of my points is the, deci- the, the decision space is huge. Even though you're drawing random cards, when to play them is great. Which card to play is great. And the, like I said, there's the top and the bottom. When to play them, I think it's a fantastic thing. So what you're doing is you're 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 moving your your probe around to get techs. You're moving your ships around to colonize planets. You're moving your ships to do battles. And when you colonize a complete sector, as long as there's a planet there of the right color, then you're going to take this objective card, which will tell you that if at the end of the game you've got this objective, then you're going to get victory points. The techs give you victory points. And at the end of the game, whoever has the most victory points is the winner. My favorite part of Warpgate is absolutely the hand management. And this is one of the things that's evolved over past iterations. I love looking at my hand of four cards and doing a quick scan and based on my board position and based on what has happened previously in the game and saying, okay, these are the ones that could possibly get me points. These are the ones that can't. Okay, the ones that can't, how can I use them to get me in a position to effectively utilize the cards that can get me points? Now, sometimes the best laid plans go awry, of course. And as I said, it's a heavily interactive game. And so someone starts occupying my trade route that I needed to do to trade and figure, okay, how can I back up? I I either can accommodate by using the card I was going to use to trade to get points in order to do something else, or I can hopefully eject them with these other cards that I've I've set. So these trade-offs in terms of how to use hand management over the course of the round I think is is by far my favorite part of the game. And it absolutely gives you the opportunity in the way that a lot of really good hand management games do. In Warpgate, it really is a question of making the best of what you've got. Because this deck of 12 action cards you have, unless something weird happens or you use any draw actions, you're going to cycle through your entire deck uh, 
three times before you shuffle it again. And so you know you're, these cards that give you victory points, like research, for example. If you're heavy into research for whatever reason, you know that research is going to be in a fixed number of times because everyone's actions deck is the same. That's the one thing in Warp Gate that never changes. And That's that, right. You never you can't acquire new action cards. You can't change your deck at all, so you're not going to get into these crazy things where one person has this one card that magically is better than everybody else. It's the same deck for everybody, and it doesn't change. And so... While it is absolutely the case, and we're going to get to this later, absolutely, that the proper text might not come up at the right time or the tr- you know your trade routes might be occupied by other people, if somebody is sitting on twice as many texts at the end of the game as you are, that's because they used their research cards well. It's because when the research cards came up in their hand, they were able to look at the board and say, all right, I'm going to be able to maximize this. I need to be able to clear off these spaces in the right way, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the part that I really like. I love me some good hand management. And the, the hand management in Warpgate with the multiplier system and the way the work is really clever and really engaging. All right, let's go through some of my good points. Faction. Everyone gets a faction at the beginning of the game, and there are plenty of factions. There are over 10 factions, and not only does it give you a special ability, but it also could change, you know, the multiplier of each turn, and it also comes with a battle card that you're going to put into your your unique battle deck, and that will give you yet another unique ability during fights. So should we talk about the combat system? Because I know you have some misgivings about the well, combat system. Well, that's a bad thing. So we can well, talk about it now. When there's a fight, whenever you do, there's certain actions that are red that are a move action. You're going to move your ships into another planet where there are enemy ships. And enemy ships can never uh, coexist, so there's automatically a fight. So what you do is you draw two random cards off the top of your battle deck. And they're either going to be anything from times zero to times five. And it'll be a simple multiplier of the ships that you have there. Whoever has the most ships after the multiplier is the winner. And then there's some also some text on the cards. And whatever maximizes the kills on the due to the text applies. And then people lose ships and the loser has to retreat. So here's what I think about combat. I think you're kind of burying the lead when you, you know, mention first, you know, there's this multiplier and that determines who wins. And oh, by the way, there are these text effects. Because the times five combat card, which you start, which most factions start in their deck, causes you to lose a ship. And what that does is it actually leads to some interesting trade-offs when you're defending a system with, say, one ship. If you're defending a system with one ship and you draw the times five, it's a serious question about whether or not you want to play it because it's going to completely wipe out your fleet. So even if you win the fight, you're not going to have anybody left in the the system that you're quote-unquote defending. The times zero cards, by and large, have fascinating effects that touch every other part of the the game. Like they might give you the ability to refresh some trade goods, or it might give you the ability to draw some new advanced combat cards, or it might uh, implicate your ability to do lots of other weird stuff. At its best the combat system in Warpgate allows you to have these kinds of trade-offs and to implicate other parts of the system. At its worst, and at its very worst, by virtue of the card draw or by virtue of the number of ships that are involved in the fight because either somebody attacks you with overwhelming force or, or what have you, at its worst, it's random. But at its very worst, I don't find it any worse than a simple die-based resolution system that you might have in any number of other combat games. And I grant you that it is frustrating to set up a proper combat and then pull the two cards and then say, oh, I pulled the wrong cards. But I would much rather have that where there's some possibility, and indeed in many of the fights there's these interesting elements of trade-offs and the ability to, to exploit these t- text effects than a simple die resolution system. It's like, okay, well, I set up a good a- attack, but the, the dice say I lost. True. I. After saying, after playing that, even though I said my last experience was bad because of the fighting, I could see another strategy where you just get into fights just for the text effects. Like I said, you know, there's a card that lets you, you know, build up your faction abilities or other things. And so there is an argument to be said that you could play cards just for the text effects and to try to manipulate the fight that way. But when you, when you want to just win the fight, when you just want that planet, you've based your whole turn around. Okay, I've got this attack card. I'm going to come in with seven ships. And I, all I need to draw is a times two, and there's no way I'm going to lose. And you draw either you draw two times time zeros, time yeah. zeros, or the guy has some sort of text effect that means you, you you know you don't do anything, and you've just sort of wasted a complete round thinking that you know because of your overwhelming numbers, and normally in games like this you'd want that. Sometimes it's very frustrating. I grant you. But again, when I take a step back, I realize that most other combat systems would give you similar outcomes without having those other more satisfying combat experiences. True. And that's a point I have here. It's very fast, right? So it's, it's like we said, you go in, 
you draw two cards, you pick one, you flip them over, multiplier, effects, it's done, move on, next thing. So that's the good part about it. You're not rolling all these dice, you're not taking casualties, you're not worrying about anything else. So it doesn't slow the game down very much, so that's what I like about it. And maybe that's what the designer wanted. He wanted the fights to be a little arbitrary, so it's not all this fight, fight, fight all the time, and the, you know whoever masses the troops is always going to win. So maybe during playtesting they found that that was a bad thing, so they want to make this arbitrary type combat system so you don't rely on it solely for getting ahead in the game. On the topic of pacing, I'd like to just address the game's scaling. The game's scaling. So there's a solitaire variant in the box. I've tried it. It's fine. And it goes up to six players with the with the, with the expanded version. You can get a version that just plays one to four, or you can get the one that, that goes up to six. And we tried it with six. I had serious misgivings about trying it with six because I played it with other player accounts. I played it with four. I played it with a lot with two. As I say, I played a lot with the designer and played it with three in it. Two, three, and four, it zooms along at a lightning pace. With six, I was shocked by how well it moved, especially since two of them were new players. It was not an ideal circumstance. Like this, this was an audition under some of the worst possible ex- uh, experiences, and it still worked. And every player was in everyone else's business precisely because of how dynamic the map is. All told, the game was about two hours, which is longer than Warpgate wants to be. But the fact that it functioned at all with six, I think, was was very surprising. Two hours so, with rules explanation. Yes, yes. And I, you know, again, we, we talk we, we talk a lot about how with six players, it's an awkward number for a lot of setups. And it scales really well. Agreed. That's one of the points I have. Another point is that it has different paths to victory. Like I've already brought up, you can get tech, you can do trade routes, you can do objectives, or you can just do a balance of all of them. There's different ways, definite strategies where you can try to localize just one of them or do a balance thing. And they all work and they all seem fun to do. This is actually kind of a, a could be good, could be bad point as far as I'm concerned because I see players. There's there's a certain class of player who you could give them uh, an array of ways to score points and they're just going to decide at the start of the game that what they want to do is one of those things. Because in Warpgate, by virtue of how the mechanisms work and be, by virtue of how much other players can get in your way, it is entirely possible that for the entirety of the game, you're not going to be able to establish a trade route. Unless, you know, unless you devote stupid degree of effort towards doing so. Or you're going to find that getting technologies is just really, really hard for you. Some players, like myself, like then being forced to be flexible and saying, okay, well, time to scrap that plan, go off and do something else. But in those moments where I've dug in my heels and when I see other players who get fixed out on on a particular strategy, then Warpgate does not become a fast, clean, fun experience. It instead becomes a frustrating grind. So that's that's purely a matter of taste, I think. If you're going to play war- something like Warpgate, you have to be able to stay flexible and exploit those other paths to victory. Or you're going to feel like, you know, the universe hates you and all the other players have decided you don't get to have any fun. I have good decision space written here. I've already talked about it. We've already talked about the hand management and the good decision space. Also, seeing the different techs come up and, and trying to get those to help you, you know, advance your strategy or because you've already picked up some objective cards you know, tying all this in. So great decision space. Another point I have here is the artwork. I think the artwork is fantastic. Even the planets on the board, all the cards have different artwork. I think it's a fantastic part as well. It is it is visually arresting and you're absolutely right. All the different pieces come together really, really nicely. doesn't feel like point salad. It instead feels like you just have multiple avenues to victory. It doesn't feel like a whole bunch of scattered mechanisms. The, everything ties together nicely. You know, the trade goods implicate the action cards, implicate the battle system, implicates everything else. And that, I think, especially in a game that's relatively simple, being able to tie all those things in together so tightly is a joy to see. I really like how you obtain the tech and objective cards. There are two two out of each, depending on, you know, what colors they are. There's some rules that, you know, there might be three of each out. But you need to get to a planet of that color in order to obtain those cards with the tech. And then with the objectives, if you get colonies on a whole sector and there's a planet of that color out there, then you get to get with the objective card. I just really like how it ties it together and how easy it is to remember and just how it works. I think most of the time it works really well. On occasion, I've seen it hurt some players somewhat unfairly, especially in larger player count games. 
it can sometimes be the case that due to a minor mistake or a minor risk, your probe ends up in a, well, your, your research drone ends up in a bad place of the map, or you're just not really able to get to where you want to go. And then you basically have to accept the fact that you need to spend more or less an entire round resetting your, your, your positioning so you can take advantage of it later. Most of the time, I think it's great, and it leads to variety and lots of dynamism, but sometimes because the display is so small, we're talking about more or less two tech cards and two mission cards, it is possible for someone to put them into a corner. Now, and again, sometimes that's their fault, but it can lead to some negative play experiences. Agreed. My last good point is the end of the game and how it's triggered. There's, uh, like we already talked about, objective deck, tech deck, and trade route tokens. Whenever any of these are depleted, that triggers the end of the game. You're going to finish that round and do one more round. I like how that works. It keeps the game fairly short. I like the length, and you can really see the end of the game coming, so you can plan for it. Absolutely. So what are your negative points, Walker? All right. This first player token. (laughs) Why is it in the game? I don't understand why it's just not like Scythe where you just go around and around. Like, I can't see how the game would be any different, and I think it would just benefit from just doing that. Because this is a normal game mechanism. You do a round, you move the first player token to the next player, and now they're the first player. And I really do not think it's used very often in a game like this. Really? I really feel as though in like a 4X big type game, there are other mechanisms in place to determine the first player. I really don't think it's this moving first player token. And I just think the game work would work fine if you just kept going around in a circle. Well, sometimes it's advantageous to be able to have first crack at something with those powerful 3X and 4X actions. And sometimes it's advantageous to be able to go last with those powerful 3X and 4X actions. And so you move the start player token around so as to spread that around. It just seemed odd to me. Okay. In the battles we've already talked about, let's not go back into the fights. And we already, we sort of talked about, at the very beginning, I talked about all of these random decks. And I really feel as though sometimes players might get, you know, screwed over buy these random decks. It's like, you know, there's no text near them or people are taking objectives before they can get to them or they set them up in just the way the randomness comes off the top. They're always going to constantly be behind the eight ball or not be able to catch up. So I feel that way about the missions more often than I do about other things. So the mission cards on them say something along the lines of have a colony on a planet of this type or have two outposts on planets of this type or have more of this kind of planet than anybody else at the end of the game. And if you do that, you get five points. And if you don't, you get nothing. So it's an all or nothing proposition. Now, on the one hand, I like it when you have something to go for. And indeed, if you if you pay attention, and if you notice that your opponent keeps going after that desert planet you have, and there's no apparent reason, you can probably figure out, oh, well, they need it for a mission card. And then either descend if you want, decide if you want to really go all in and defend the place, or just leave. So you don't have to worry about tying up your own resources there. But... Some of them are a bit wonky. There's one mission card in particular that says score this if you've scored all your other mission cards. And in some game states, that can disincentivize you from getting more mission cards. And I don't really like how that feels necessarily. It's also the case they don't that this is one area where I don't think Warpgate scales very well. Because some of the missions, as I said, are having more than anyone else of a certain thing. And sometimes in a two-player game... That's perfectly reasonable. You can really decide and say, okay, my opponent has five of something. I really need to get to six or decide not to focus on that mission. But in a you know, four, five, six-player game, sometimes that just seems borderline insurmountable or trivial based on how the map happens to shake out. And so uh, given that you can spend a lot of effort to get these mission cards and then find out that on the front of them is something that's either trivial that you've already accomplished and can hold on to relatively easy or something that's a massively heavy lift i'm not a huge fan of that part yeah that's funny that you should bring up that point because that's very very seldom do i suggest that they should change part of the game and i just really think an expanded objective deck system would make this game infinitely more fun like either a way to look at your opponent's uh cards or to take the cards away from them somehow or to switch cards around or like a graduated victory point system or if you revealed your objective cards they'd be worth just something that would change the way that they work i think it would really improve the game i i think it could use some tweaking just again to avoid some of these possible negative player experiences For some reason, and this could be a prejudice that only I have, I'd I'd like to hear your thoughts. When a game has mission cards in them, 
And when it's tied to map control, and when it's the case that they are the po highest possible point reward, they give you five points when trade routes give you three and tech cards give you two, by and large. It, nonetheless, you know, I immediately start to think that they are more important, or at least of, of central importance to the game. When really they're not. They're really just one of three different av avenues to, towards point, broadly speaking. So there's a perception issue. And so I would feel better, I think, if there was some way to partially score them, maybe, if you've only uh, accomplished a little bit of it. I don't know, maybe, maybe make it one point if you do half of it, five points if you do all of yeah. it. Some, something along those lines. Off the, yeah. yeah, yeah, Something, and that's just off the top of our heads. We're not game designers. We're not here to fix anything. The, 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 the privilege of a critic is that we get to crap all over your work and not tell you how to do it any better. That's just the way the world works. Yeah, like if you revealed it, then you get a lower or lower points, or if you keep it to the end of the game secret, you know, then you get the higher points, right? Something. something You'd have like to rejigger the cards in that way. But uh, yeah, I, a number of things about the mission deck don't sit well with me. And that's all the bad points I've got. And by and large, I really enjoyed the game. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, expansion here. So there's an exploration expansion whereby you have to go and print out the rules online. Now, I, I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, the designer has said that he did it this way so as to guarantee that people wouldn't use it on their first play. And I can respect that because if a rulebook tells me not to do something on their first play, half the time I'll ignore it. On the other hand, I find it obnoxious because if you're going to give me the components to something in your box, you should probably give me the rules to it in your box. So, you know, I kind of respect the move, but at the same time, I, I find it kind of obnoxious. So we've played it only once with the exploration mechanism. we played the game a bunch of times, but only once with, with the exploration tokens. And they're interesting in that they, number one, make non-trade planets better, and number two, make the recon action better, which are two elements of, of the base game of Warpgate that are not particularly appealing. They have their point, they have their uses, but they're not particularly appealing. And the way it does, the way it does randomness is actually pretty good. There are two tokens on every planet that has tokens. You reveal the first one, and you either take that, or you can take the second one, but you don't know what it is. So there are some bad exploration tokens, but you only ever get them when you decided to take a risk and hope for something better, which is legitimate. And uh, I, I definitely prefer it to a lot of the other exploration-type tokens you see in other 4X games, which tend to run the gamut from, here, have a billion points, to everyone is dead. I don't know what game you're talking about. I'm actually talking about several. It's not just Twilight Imperium. <laughs> a lot of 4X games do this, and I don't True. know why they range this wildly. So when I first saw the expansion, I was I was, I was was worried. It's like, oh, Super are you going gonna... yeah. No, but mm. they're, they're all very interesting and, and semi-balanced, for sure. Yeah, I might I might consider introducing new players to it in the future. I don't know, depending on their on their level of, of comfort with, with rules and complexity. But I, I did like how it made less valuable things valuable. Agreed. So to sum up, to sum up, I really think that what, what's great about Warpgate is that it really punches above its weight class. In the realm of 4X games, and it's not a full 4X, but it's closer to a full 4X than anything shy of two hours that I've ever played. It gets you a lot of the good bits, a lot of the variety, a lot of the tactile thrill of fighting over borders and contesting planets, and a lot of the really, really good player interaction that sometimes even the good 4X games don't have as much of. It's dynamic, it's approachable, it's really engaging. The only part that I don't like about it is, as I say, sometimes the mission cards or the flop of the technology deck might give you some, uh, some impressions that you're behind the eight ball and can't make any progress. And while most of the time I enjoy having to be flexible, sometimes I think that the game puts you into a bit of a corner. But in a game this quick, it's hard to take that too personally. Yeah, and a Forex game that you set up in five minutes is always fantastic, and I really enjoy every play of it, but I would never I would never choose to play Warpgate. You keep saying that. What do you mean you would never choose to? So you, you would never suggest it? I would never suggest it. Okay. Fair enough, because when you have been when when warpgate has been put in front of you you have chosen to play it several times yeah i would play so. yeah, yeah i would never it would never, like if they said walker do you want to play i would never say warpgate all right so that was warpgate by artem nichiporov at wolf designer now on to the topic of the week which is biggest rules mistakes so when i proposed this topic you readily accepted but then immediately thereafter basically declared i'm going to quote you pretty closely here that you have never made any rules mistakes over the course of your entire life, given your status of complete and total perfection. So why don't you just talk about all the things you've done, you dummy, dummy, dumb face. End quote. That's roughly accurate, yeah, that's, yes? That's pretty close. Yeah, yeah. I might have not said it out loud, but I definitely thought it. Well, you got that pretty dead on, Mark. That was good. Yeah, I'm very perceptive. So let's talk about some of the worst mistakes that I've inflicted on people, because... 
And just as a, as a prologue, everyone knows that the role of a game explainer is a thankless, terrible, unforgiving task. If you do it properly, people will give you crap. If you do it badly, people will give you more crap. And nothing feels worse to me as a game explainer than having explained a game improperly, and then I feel like I've wasted everyone's time, especially if I feel that the, that the rule change that I smuggled in made the experience far worse. And so let me just talk. Actually, uh, start off with some of the uh, sort of a category of rules mistakes that I'm very, very prone to personally, and that is forgetting to deal out stuff at the start. I'm not talking about starting resources. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I mean other elements, particularly scoring cards. In Warpgate, you start with a mission card. I sometimes forget to do that. And the other day, we played a game variant where the new mission was introduced at the start of round four. It's a special round four variant that we decided to try out totally on purpose. I do the same thing with Voyages of Marco Polo. I feel like half the time I forget to give people the, the, the starting route uh, bonus point cards. So it's, it's just something that I do all the time, and it makes me feel like such a jerk. And sometimes in the middle of a, sometimes in the middle of a game, you can easily just put them in, like, like with Warpgate. Voyages of Marco Polo, not so much. If you wait until the, the middle of the second round or something, it's too late. So guess what? You're playing with a lot fewer victory conditions. Has that ever happened to you, Walker? It has, Definitely. Like I said, I couldn't come up with very many uh, exact examples because all of my poor games are in boxes. It made me cry. I wanted to put some pictures of my Kallax, you know, disassembled. It's something that almost, you know, would bring tears to your eyes, Mark, when you see these things. That would be a very interesting version of check out my collection shots. It's like, <laughs> exactly. like, here's the picture of my empty shelf. Here's a picture of all my moving boxes. So when I, when I do these topics and things, I usually, you know, walk into my, you know, game room and I scan across a thing and I try to bring up, remember stories. Because my memory, you know, when, I'm, when you're this old and decrepit as I am, it's hard to remember such things. So, you know, I look across my collection and try to remember exact situations. I couldn't, you know, without seeing the games, it was kind of hard. But I do remember Xenoshift is when uh, the new Dreadmire came out. We just sort of, you know, open the box, grab the cards and start playing, mm. not knowing that, you know, they've brought in a bunch of new rules changes, uh, specifically that in the phase one of every big, you know, mission that you only have to face, you know, three bad guys as opposed to four. And that made a huge difference. So that was my big, probably the only one really. Also making a rules. huge difference if you played it that way would be the, the change in reveal effects. Because in Dreadmire, the reveal effect is completely different than it was in the base game. So that probably changed the tenor of a lot of different creatures and, and, and items. Definitely. So I'm actually going to work up, start with relatively minor things, and go up to the, the very height of egregiousness. And I don't think I've ever publicly declared this uh, the, the, the worst one that I ever did, which happened comparatively a long time ago, and I don't think I've ever talked about since. And the people involved, very politely, never brought it up again. So I, I thank them for that, uh, wherever they are. So the first thing is, uh, I recently acquired a Kickstarter game called Elo Darkness, which is a, a two-player MOBA-type game. I haven't talked about it yet, because the one play that I did, I basically systematically forgot all the card-drawing opportunities, other than the card draw at the end of a round. And as a result the card starvation of a hand management game was so pronounced that we both found it very, very frustrating. But later on, as we were packing up and we were complaining about how the hand management was weird, the person I was playing with kept find, just opened up the rulebook at random pages like, oh, when this happens, you're supposed to draw a card. When this happens, you're supposed to draw a card. When this happens, you're... I'm like, oh, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> we just played the game, right? Yeah. That being said, I do have a keen sense in games. Like when I feel something that's not happening right, happening that I think the way it should be, I grab the rule book and I do find a lot of times when we've been making mistakes. No, that's not true. It's completely true. You all, you all the time when I'm explaining a game to you that I've been playing. Oh man, now I now I know why I shouldn't have suggested this topic because now you're just going to use this as ammunition for the future because. All the time when I'm explaining the game, you think, that doesn't sound right. And I'm like, I've played this a bunch of times. I've read the rulebook a bunch of times. This is how it works. And you're like, I don't think so. And you've never played before. You start paging through. And then sure enough, there's that telltale sign. Everyone everyone who's been a game explainer knows this. That telltale sign of you, you go to a certain package, passage in the rulebook, then you just close the book and set it aside and say nothing. <laughs> everyone knows that. Exactly. It's so and great. you do it all the time. When people have played a game before and they're like, I don't think that's how it works and they want to shuffle through the rulebook, that's cool. When they haven't played before, it's like, this this doesn't accord with my intuition about how games ought to work in the abstract. That, sir, is obnoxious. Moving on. All right, moving on. I have, <laughs> I have some, let's say, so previous, pre, previous version I just talked about with Xenoshift. If games, two games that are very similar, they have similar mechanisms, sometimes you get them mixed up. Sometimes you could get off off on the wrong tangent. 
what I, I just ha- talked about, if something just seems better, like as you're playing a game and this, this just makes more sense, you accidentally go in that variant, sometimes you do that. I guarantee that with deck builders, I'm sure that with many deck builders, I accidentally forget whether the purchased card goes in your hand or in the discard pile. When you reshuffle, do you discard all your cards at the end of the turn? That's going to come up again later. As you say, there are just so many so many similar games. I'm positive that I misplay a lot of those details very often. And sometimes it makes a huge difference. Sometimes the rules are just very badly written. Of course. Uh, house rule that you've played with many, many times. You just forgot that it was a house rule. So you just, you know, as you just, you know, introduce people to it automatically, forgetting. Uh, you misremember something. Like you're playing a game. It's very in-depth. You just say, okay, we'll just look this up later. And then you play it again later and you, you, you just think that that's the way you're going to play it from now on. You didn't actually look up the rule later like you were supposed to. Sometimes it could be a bad translation. Uh, yes. From a different language. You know, they just, you know, inverse a word slightly wrong or use the wrong words. Or sometimes the translation literally tells you the wrong rule. That happened in the expansion of Hyperborea. There were, I had to re- resort to the Italian and German rule books and say, okay, I've got three rule books here. I'm going to go with whatever two agree with. <laughs> and sure enough, the English rulebook is just flatly mis- mistranslated. I played it the wrong way as a result for a while. But I, did, I haven't included this uh, that on the list because it wasn't my fault. All right. I've got one more and then I've got like my conclusion. And you've got a bunch more examples. Oh, yeah. So my last one is... I want to air my shame here, Walker. No problem. Too, too many games. Rules overlord, which we bo- which more you than me because I'm lazy that you run into, you just read so many rule books sometimes they get jumbled up, right? It's true. It's true. It, it, I mean, it's especially problematic for things you don't know to look up. Like hand size, for example, is an easy one. You know, that you know you need to look up because, you say, well, I think it's six, but I don't know. And that, that's something to check. But sometimes the more fundamental stuff. Uh, so the, the last time that I really had to wrestle with a game to get it 100% properly wasn't actually a... a, a, a detailed concept or anything like that. It was actually Seal Team Flex, the only game that matters. And we talked about this in the review. We love the game. Rulebook could use some work. And also there are some flatly, not wrong rules, but rules that are, are heavily misleading. For example, this whole notion of alertness. And for a while, our first few games of Seal Team Flex, we found the game far too easy because I had misparsed the element of alertness to say that something has to be an alert to react to you. So we were just running up and stabbing bad guys in the face with that reaction fire because I thought, oh, they're not alert yet. Well, no, they're always alert all the time. And effectively, this notion of alertness only matters for movement later on. And eh, it could have been clarified. But anyway, uh, so that really did change the game experience uh, for a lot. And still, Team Flex is one of those games that really does benefit from getting all the little rules right. Another game that I played really, 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 really wrong. And this, I, I, I'll take the defense of some games or uh, a lot of similar games have different details was Raw. The first time I played Raw, and I remember this very, very distinctly, even though it was very early on in my, in my hobby, uh, hobby game life. I'd already played a bunch of auction games because at the time auction games were the tableau builders, so everything was an auction game. The first time I played Raw, we played it because I told them to, so that if you were outbid, your son came back to you exhausted. So bidding was very, very, very risky. And I'll tell you this much. I'm not going to defend it as a legitimate house rule. I'm not going to be one of those people on board gaming. It's like, I played the game wrong, but I think my way works great. Everyone should play this way. That's not me. But it still worked as a game. It's very interesting. It was still shockingly enjoyable. That's because Raw is a work of sheer genius. And even Raw played badly is still better than a lot of other games. But yeah, it was uh, it was a very strange game in hindsight, where all your whenever you were outbid, it came back because sometimes in auction games that's how it works. If you're outbid, you lose your bid. Yep. Usually blind bids, but you know sometimes in other other games as well. So that's my defense, and I'm sticking to it. Would you like to hear my worst? Yes. Most egregious. Let's hear the worst. <clears throat> okay. Dominion. Everyone's familiar with it. It was the first deck building game, certainly the first of its type. I missed a key provision. And this one change made Dominion grotesquely stupid. And that is, I missed the part where you discard your hand at the end of your turn. Oh. <laughs> so we had 20 card hands. We had our entire decks in our hands. The first thing that made things really awkward was that suddenly reaction cards were dumb. Because everyone had a reaction card all the time. They would just buy a single reaction card, and then once it showed up in your hands, like, okay, don't bother attacking me. I've got this reaction. So that was the first, the first hint that probably should have made me think, why? It can't be this stupid, can it? And the other thing is that buying was so weird. It we, wasn't even draw up to five. It was just keep 
Keep drawing five. Drawing five every turn. Yeah, because the, that well, part, because it's, it, it says draw five cards says, yeah, you're at right. the start of your turn. Yeah. So because I missed the part where you discard your hand, we were discarding cards when we were playing them. We were discarding cards when we bought things. And everything we bought went into the discard pile. But sure enough, our discard piles were so small because yeah. that's the only <laughs> that, way. That, that would make buying cards cards way easier. Yes, uh, it made it made the game real dumb. Real, real dumb. And afterwards, everyone was like, oh, that was kind of weird. And then I'm sure that in very short order, the other people that I played, it was a three-player game, that the other two people that I had just taught this bizarre non-game to found out either because they played Dominion with someone else, because you couldn't escape Dominion after Dominion first came out, or because they'd actually read the rules themselves. And they were very, very nice. They never, never threw it in my face. But I have to say that was probably one of my lowest moments in... Well, certainly my lowest moment as a board game explainer, missing that one little detail. And again, sometimes it's those tiny little details that make games work. Yeah. On that topic, my closing thing is like if the game, if I feel the game is popular enough and that we're going to play it a lot more, it's usually after about five times we've played it, I usually always go back to the rule book, reread it just to make sure there's not these little details that we're missing out or a different way the mechanisms are supposed to work because a lot of the times... Once you get into a game, you just keep playing it the way you think it's supposed to be played, and you might have missed the little bits. Same here. Absolutely. And I have to say that we are pretty fortunate in the local people that we game with because there's nothing worse as a game explainer than getting a rule wrong and then having somebody either at the end of the game when when the, the proper rule is discovered or in the middle of the game when the proper rule is discovered in the middle of the game going on and on about, oh, well, that makes a huge difference. I would have done X, Y, and Z instead of A, B, and C. And I really do appreciate that a number of people in our group, when a rule's a mistake like that, they immediately make the decision whether it makes sense to make the change right away or to just keep playing the wrong way. And then they immediately go, oh, that's fine. We'll just do this. And that just sets the tone of being like, it's okay. Mistakes happen and we're going to move on. And I really appreciate it when someone's willing to do that and cover for my errors. Just like you said in Warpgate, we say, oh, that's an actually, it's a turn seven thing that we're going to do. We're playing a special variant now. We're testing it out. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) As I say. As I said right at the beginning, you can tell a funny story about anything that happens in the game, even a rules mistake. That's right. Agreed. And so that's going to do it for this week of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our board game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.